This is not like a hurricane where the community may have several days' notice. And these events can impact the community within hours or as we saw at the campfire, literally within minutes. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where we discuss insights and ideas for how to protect your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, and I'm joined today by Alex Marangides. Alex is a researcher and fire protection engineer for the National Institute of Standards and Technology, also known as NIST. And NIST recently published Alexander's, I would say, very impressive research study on the Camp Fire in Butte County, California. The Camp Fire became the costliest disaster worldwide in 2018 and the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. And the research study is full of significant and compelling information. So, Alex, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? Peter, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Our primary topic today is your recent wildfire study and specifically how it can guide future life-saving research and emergency preparedness. But before we begin, can you provide our listeners with some context by giving us an overview of NIST and the important research and data it provides? Absolutely. NIST used to be the old Bureau of Standards, is our non-regulatory research arm of the U.S. Department of Commerce. So we are part of the federal government. Within NIST, several laboratories, and the fire division is part of the engineering laboratory. Within the fire division, we have a group specifically tasked with enhancing life safety and reducing the impact of wild and urban interface fires. That's our WUI group. So I'm part of that group, and we're trying to make enhancements both in life safety and in reducing the impact of WUI fires, not only to residences and commercial structures, but also to the infrastructure. Okay, fantastic. Well, what about you personally? Can you provide just a bit of a background about your personal career? Sure. As you said, I'm a fire protection engineer with over 25 years of experience in large-scale fire experiments and over 20 years' experience in post-fire reconstructions. I have worked on the next-generation fire suppression systems for the U.S. Navy and NATO surface fleet and have conducted hundreds of uh, large-scale experiments. I have spent years in the field uh, collecting wildland urban interface, or WUI, data analyzing it and uh, documenting uh, WUI fires. Uh, Our findings from these uh, WUI fires, together with our ongoing research at NIST and with our partners, have impacted standards and codes both nationally and regionally. All right, excellent. Well, let's go ahead and dive into your report on the wildfire called the Camp Fire with a capital C. Why did you and your team decide to study this particular wildfire? What made it so devastating? And then I guess maybe even before you get into that, maybe tell people why it's called the Camp Fire. All right. Those are both great questions. Typically, large outdoor fires take their name from the location of origin. So it can be a cross street a geographic location, uh, something like that. So this wasn't because there was a campfire going, but the area where the ignition occurred is embarrassed that name. So the question why the camp is a very interesting question. And before answering that, I want to take a quick step back. 
and look at the work that we have done over the last 12 plus years at NIST, together with all of our federal, state and local partners. We have done three in-depth investigations, uh, reconstructions, and all three were interface fires. So an interface is you have a town or a city and there's a clear, sharp demarcation between the wildlands and the city or town or subdivision. And uh, we learned a lot of information about fire behavior in the interface. But the next logical progression, technically, was to look at an intermix fire. And we started planning an intermix deployment with California all the way back to 2017. So the campfire is our fourth movie overall reconstruction. And it's a technically important fire for us for multiple reasons. First of all, the entire town of Paradise was impacted. Not only the town was evacuated, but the entire town saw fire. And that gives us a very nice, clean data set. But even more importantly, we had access to great data. And for us, in order for us to be able to build, rebuild this event in time and space, we need a lot of good quality, high-resolution data. From damaged structures to 911 radio logs to fire engine GPS tracks to police dash cams, body cams, and so on. So access to the data and the availability of data together with how the fire impacted the entire town where the entire town was not only evacuated, but also experienced fire, were keys to our decision to pull the trigger and start a study. Hmm. And what made it so devastating? Just in a, a quick summary, like what do you think caused it to be as bad as it was? Well, there are five factors uh, that drove fire spread and impact to, to paradise. And it was the confluence of those five factors that really resulted in the devastation. So let's go through the list. Number one, and they're all important. I'm just listing them sequentially here. Yeah, yeah. Fire history, a fuels built up. A paradise and Magalia and large parts of Magalia had not burned for over 100 years. So there was extensive wow. fuel built up. Number two, drought. We had over 200 days with almost no precipitation. Number three, a wind event combined with the topography where local canyons accelerated the wind and caused very rapid fire spread. And the last one, which may sound a little counterintuitive, is the location of the fire origin away from the town. Hmm. How would that have an impact? That is a great question. <laughs> so most people think that a fire far, now we're talking about outdoor large fires, we're not talking yeah. about building fires. Most people think that if a fire starts far away, it's not as problematic. However, if the fire starts far away and the prevailing winds line it up so that as the fire develops, it approaches the town, the result of a faraway ignition translates to a very wide fire front. Mm. The fire has time to build momentum and spread. And in the case of Paradise, the entire eastern side of town got a direct hit. If a fire had started much closer, it would have arrived into town sooner, there's no question, but the impact on the town would have been significantly more focused. Wow. And I can imagine it's easier to respond to a fire that's closer. You see it faster, you can get there faster and perhaps mitigate it more quickly. It is potentially easier. Here, one of the other factors that negatively impacted the entire event 
was the limited access associated with yeah. not only the ignition, but if you look at the topography in the area surrounding Paradise, you have canyons, many of them run north to south, and you cannot easily go east to west. Mm. So you have to go quite a ways out of your way to get where you need to go. And that dramatically impacts not only response, but also evacuation. Yep. Well, generally speaking, how long does a study like this take and who are the major players that are involved in helping you put it together? So all of our studies are collaborations. We have partners at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. Typically, our studies take three to four years. This one will take a little over four years because it is so extensive. And the, the fire was so extensive and there is so much great information for us to mine and document and understand. Right. With respect to the campfire study... We are the technical lead, but it's really a partnership. And this could not have been possible without the collaboration from the town of Paradise. And that included Paradise Town Hall, Paradise Irrigation District, Paradise Public Works, Paradise Police, and also CAL FIRE, the U.S. Forest Service, FEMA, and almost countless jurisdictions. To give you a sense of scale, it took our team six months on location just to collect the data. The reconstruction to date has taken over 10,000 hours, and over 190 persons have been involved in the effort to date. Wow. And what kind of information are they giving you? Like, I'm trying to think in terms of our listeners and what they're thinking. It's like, are you getting pictures? Are you getting... So the information is really quite broad in nature because it depends on who we talk with. Mm. The way we do these reconstructions, we typically start at the top of the instant management team. So with the instant commander, the person that oversees the whole response and work down through the chain of command, all the way down to the individual fire engines. But we don't just focus on firefighters. We speak with firefighters. We have what are known as technical discussions. They're not interviews because they're not scripted. We have technical discussions with law enforcement, municipal leaders, irrigation district, ambulance and response and emergency services. So the discussions are quite broad in nature, and sometimes they also are augmented by pictures and videos. Sometimes we're provided, as I mentioned, GPS data or 911 calls. And we take all this information, thousands, literally thousands of data points and stitch them together in space and time to reconstruct this timeline. It's almost like you have a drone with a camera on it and you're trying to recreate the journey of that drone following the first spark all the way to the end flame being put out. Absolutely. The wild hour in focus here is the first 24 hours. We really time slice the report, both in space and in time. So we have in our large report, the 400-page report is accompanied by 14 E-size maps. Those are three feet by four feet. Wow. And those are time slices, and that's where we document all over 2,000 data points that we have for fire alone. That's incredible. Well, when you step back and look at it from the 100,000 foot view, what were your goals for this report? And as you were trying to achieve those goals, what kind of challenges did you experience throughout the entire research process? So, you know, we set forth to answer five questions. So the first question was really a foundational question. How can we even document such a report? How can we put together progression 
of a fire on that scale. And we're very fortunate that the methodology that we had developed from our previous reconstruction was intentionally built to be expandable and adaptable, and we had no problems there. Mm-hmm. So that worked out very well. The second question we set out to answer was, how did the fire spread to and within paradise? And the resolution of our data really enabled us to answer those questions. And to give you just you know a little bit of information, because we have close to 100 pages of fire progression detailed information in the report, but to give the audience a sense of scale, the first 911 calls came in before 6.30 in the morning. And the fire was about seven miles away from Paradise. Between the ignition and the town of Paradise is the community of Concow. And that community started experiencing fire before 7.30. And by 7.49, we had the first reported fire in Paradise. So if we just take one quick step back, we're looking at less than an hour and a half, the fire, you know, traveled seven miles. And what is very interesting here is what happened in the next 40 minutes. The fire front didn't reach paradise until 8.30. But from 7.49 to 8.30, so that's a time window of 41 minutes, we identified and documented 30 separate ignitions in town for members. Wow. That's almost an ignition a minute. So the wind must have been just crazy. The wind was crazy. (laughs) Yes, there was a wind event. It was a red flag warning. The town had anticipated, they had prepared extensively, and they were able to take actions, uh, save lives, uh, together with the first responders that came to help from, from out of town. But the event developed very, very quickly. And that's really one of the important themes that one needs to be mindful of when we talk about these types of disasters. We talked about the primary causes of the extensive devastation, you know, the fire history, drought, wind and topography in the location of the ignition. Right. And we have to briefly talk about how the structures ignite. I think it is important here. That's one of the questions that, that was our question number four. And it's important because almost 20,000 structures were destroyed. So from first responder eyewitness accounts, we identified 16 different pathways that resulted in uh, structure ignitions. And that's very important for us because we can work on mitigating these pathways to uncouple sever, if you will, the pathway so that the fire doesn't get to the building to reduce the losses in the future. And the last question, but really a very, very important question, was how unique was Paradise as a community at risk to WE fires? And in order for us to be able to answer that in the future, we had to create our community hazard assessment framework. And that is the framework that will enable communities to look at these events from 30,000 feet and pull relevant information together, much more than just if the buildings are going to burn. Because these large WUI events, like the campfire, can truly devastate communities. And the framework is enabling us to look at the big picture. 
and identify vulnerabilities, whether they are related with notification, evacuation, safety zones, traffic information, response, infrastructure, continuity of government, and so on and so forth. That framework sounds pretty helpful. I guess, in your opinion, what are the most important insights derived from your report, other than that framework in general? Like, how has it helped you better understand and prepare for things coming in the future? This is not like a hurricane where the community may have several days' notice. These events can impact the community within hours or, as we saw at the campfire, literally within minutes. So all the work has to go into pre-planning. And it is very, very, very important, I cannot stress that enough, for communities and companies to be prepared, have a plan. That is absolutely essential. The framework can be used to look at the much bigger picture at the community level, but there are tools out there like Ready, Set, Go. That is a tool by the International Association of Fire Chiefs that can help residents and communities get ready for these types of wooey fires. Another great tool is can be found online at the usfa.fema.gov.gov. And these tools can help, but it is very important for people to understand that it's all in the preparation because these events can happen so quickly. So let me give you just a simple example. If you have a large company and you have a big campus, you know, companies have plans for how to deal with fire on their campus. So if there's a building on fire, you can either evacuate part of the building or the entire building, depending on, you know, a whole bunch of details. But here we're looking at a completely different event where one may need to evacuate the entire campus. And now we have to think, well, we are not the only ones evacuating. It's not that, you know, in that neighborhood or community or part of the town or city, our company is going to be the only one evacuating. We have to put in context our evacuation within the evacuation of the entire community. So discussions and preparations with local officials, whether it is law enforcement, the authorities having jurisdiction, the town council, all of that stuff has to take place beforehand because whereas a plan for a building may only locally impact the community, the entire evacuation of one campus could potentially significantly gridlock local arteries, and all that needs to be planned well ahead of schedule. Yeah, I think the the planning part is incredibly important for just about any disaster you can think of. But for this one, and this type of disaster in particular, did the report really highlight things that organizations or communities or the government can do to perhaps prevent these things, maybe not from happening, but from happening to such great effect? Like, are there steps you can take? The one highlight of this report, which is both very positive, but at the same time, maybe alarming for other communities, is that Paradise was well prepared. Wow. So this happened with a town that was well prepared. And they took a number of actions. They trained their public works. They had fuel removal programs specifically aimed at protecting infrastructure. Just before the event, they swept the street. They knew that the wind event was coming. They changed all the batteries, backups to their communication system. So even if they lost power, the public works could still talk. They had coordinated, they had an evacuation plan in place, which many communities don't have, and which we're going to be discussing in our next report next year, our report number four. But the town was very well prepared. But if you look at those factors that we talked about, the fuel built up, you know, the lack of fire history, the drought, the wind, the ignition location, none of these factors are unique to paradise. There are countless other communities, and that is really one of the 
main messages of this report, that this happened with a well-prepared community and looking at it macroscopically, nothing unusual. So we need to use the framework to identify other areas of equal hazards and make sure that we're prepared, not only from a structure survivability, but firstly, from a life safety perspective, residents and first responders. Well, it sounds like this, I guess, perfect storm, essentially, of events that came together gave us the ability to create kind of a perfect picture of how badly things can go, even when people are well prepared. So how do you think your findings will impact future emergency preparedness at all levels, federal, state, local, or, you know, what do you, what do you hope? Well, you know, the, this is a long process. The, uh, there are over 20 technical findings in the report, and there are almost a dozen recommendations. One of the big items that we really haven't discussed to date so far in this interview is the burnovers. Now, a burnover is when you are trapped essentially, and surrounded by fire. Right. And this can result in fatalities and injuries and damage to equipment. And there is a system developed by the National Wildfire Coordinating Group, NWCG, how these events should be reported. And there are nuances. I'm simplifying here. There are nuances between burnovers and entrapments and near misses and all of that. But for the purposes of our discussion, we can lump all this together into burnover. And two were reported using the formal approach, but because we did our in-depth study, we have identified 19. Wow. Yes. And many of them resulted in injuries. Some of them resulted in fatalities. And in our report four, we will reconstruct the notification, evacuation, traffic information, temporary refuge areas. It is very likely that we're going to bump that number up from 19. So what we're seeing here is even with Paradise being well-prepared, because of the fuel accumulation and the confluence of the factors we discussed earlier, locally we had very severe conditions which impact life safety locally, but also resulted in the impact of evacuation, which we're going to be studying in more detail in report number four. So this is really a very important lesson learned that we need to understand these burnovers so that we can create guidance to alleviate them, to, re- to remove that hazard. Because we don't want to be in a situation where communities lose their egress arteries because right. of, of fire, then we get into very dangerous situations. We need to be able to articulate how many other communities are in a similar situation to paradise. Yeah. Not only locally, not only at the state level, but nationally, because that's going to have significant impact on where mitigation funds are allocated and what gets done first to make sure that we don't have events that result in significant loss of life and significant loss of property. So you and your team are deep in this from an academic viewpoint, and you create a tremendous amount of analysis How does that then trickle down to the average business or homeowner or community where they can make sense of all this amazing information you have that becomes actionable? So there are several paths forward for us to disseminate our information. The data, all the information that we generate is directly available to the public, first of all. So the public can go to their browser and type NIST campfire or just type NIST technical notes 2135 
2135, and they'll get access to our timeline reconstruction report. So that's straightforward. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, we interact with our federal partners like the U.S. Fire Administration, and we take our knowledge and tech transfer it to them, and they train the officers, fire officers from all across the nation. Okay. So that is how we get the information to the fire departments and the first responders at the national level, but we also deal with statewide fire training academies to get that knowledge out. So that's a path forward to the first responders. Additionally, that knowledge that we're generating is finding its way into building code standards and best practices. But that's not all. <laughs> Lastly, <laughs> we try to generate knowledge summaries, like a fact sheet, simple documents, or relatively simple documents that distill all of that technical knowledge that can then be easily pulled. And the information is shared with our stakeholders. So if you go to usfa.fema.gov, you will see, as an example, information about why you don't want to have a wooden fence, a combustible fence next to your neighbor's combustible fence. And that's an example of specific technical knowledge that is finding its way out in a very usable form. So there are multiple paths for jurisdictions and companies to gain access uh, to the data, whether they reach out directly to us and get the data straight from our report, or by collaboration with federal, state, and local agencies. Okay. And it sounds like when the rubber meets the road is when the homeowner or business owner really wants to figure out what can I do better so that quote doesn't happen to me. The best thing to do is to maybe reach out to your local fire department, first responders. And Absolutely. Uh, talk with your, reach out to your fire department. When in place, reach out to your fire or safe council. Reach out to your town officials and learn about their plans that they have in place, learn about the tools that they have in place that can help mitigate the hazards. Absolutely. Yeah, challenge your, your town officials. That's a, that's a great idea. So I have just one more question for you before we wrap up. We always like to ask our guests to give the audience an action item or a piece of advice that can make an immediate impact on their organizations. What can a company or an organization do today to help improve their emergency preparedness and overall safety culture? So I would say for any organization that is in wooey fire risk prone area, and as an example, if we're talking about California, Cal Fire develops a statewide fire hazard severity maps, so you can easily go online and find out if you are in one of those wooey fire prone areas and what is the relative hazard associated with your location. But for companies that are in wooey fire hazard prone areas, have a plan invest in a plan now because there is no time to do that after ignition. Yeah. And the more people invest, the returns will be very significant, not only in terms of enhancing life safety, but also continuity of operations. Yeah. And impact to the business. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What does WUI stand for again, just for our, our listeners? The uh, Wild and Urban Interface. Wild and Urban Interface. Okay. Fantastic. 
All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Very informative. Thanks for being on the show and sharing all this information that you have with the listeners. If anyone has follow-up questions for you, or just wants to connect, what's the best way for them to find you out there? They can reach me by email. The email is pretty simple. It's Alex M A L E X M at N I S T dot gov. Alex M at Nish dot gov. That is easy. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks again for taking time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast. And for the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.